All right, so we've been in Ephesians for a couple of years. We've been using it as the first two parts of our series, Kingdom Kids, Kingdom Family. Today we are finishing the Kingdom Family part, which means we're finishing Ephesians. We will start the third part of the series in January, which is called Kingdom Come. Ephesians 6, we're going to be looking really at uh, verses 18 through the end, but let's just start in verse 10 um, to get a little context here. Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. This is God's living active word for us today, church. Let's pray together. Thank you for your word that Paul calls here the sword of the spirit. We ask that in our hearts, you would do what only you can do through your word today. We acknowledge together that there is no power or authority in my words or in the way that I could put a sermon together. The power and authority is in your word today. So we ask that you would speak into our lives, convince our minds, comfort our hearts like only you can. Pray for the person who is here today who is far from you, the person who maybe just doesn't know you at all, we ask that you would reveal yourself to them like only you can. Bless us now as we study your word, God. Speak to us like only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been looking at the armor of God, God's armor as it's really called, for the last six weeks. Today, we're looking at the sword of the spirit and prayer. But first, let me just briefly remind us of four things that have applied to every piece of the armor, including what we're looking at today. First reminder, we need to remember the armor is God's armor. In fact, God is the first one in scripture that is depicted as wearing this armor, if you will, and putting on this armor. God gives us his armor in this spiritual battle which coincides with the second reminder that the armor points us to and is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Everything about the armor points us to the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. Even today, as we look at the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, we have to remember that places like uh, the book of John say that Jesus is the living word of God. As we are clothed with Jesus, we are clothed and armed with all of who he is. He is our power. He is our authority. He is our protection against the spiritual forces of wickedness. Next reminder is that the armor is metaphorical, not magical. So we don't just 
pray some prayer. Lord, give me the sword. And a magical sword appears in our hands and the enemy's like, oh no, they got the sword. Uh, the armor is metaphorical, which means every piece of this armor um, is a picture. It's a metaphor of a spiritual reality that is necessary for the spiritual battle. The sword of the spirit, for instance, represents the word of God. Which leads us to the last reminder that the armor must be appropriated in order to be effective. Again, it does us no good to talk about the armor. In order for it to do its job, the, the spiritual realities that the armor represents must be applied to our lives. We'll talk a little bit about how to do that today with the sword of the spirit. All of this is true about the sword of the spirit. We're going to start off talking about this, which is, he tells us, the word of God. So as I said, there's this imagery in the Old Testament about um, God as, you know, being a warrior, right? This victorious warrior. And then obviously the Roman soldier, like this one that's painted right here. Shout out to Neil Perrow once again for doing this awesome illustration. Uh, that's obviously imagery, right, that we can pull from. But there's someone else that we see in Scripture who is depicted as a warrior that I want us to look at. If you didn't know, Jesus is coming again. Amen, Don. Thank you. Uh, and the first time he came, he came as a suffering servant, right? He came as a sacrificial lamb. But when he returns, he will not be returning as a suffering servant or a sacrificial lamb, but as the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when he returns, amen, when he returns, he's coming to do some business. He's coming to do some warfare. The book of Revelation uh, is a, a vision that John saw about the, the, the things that are to come. And so uh, this is about the day, Revelation 19, that Jesus returns. Starting in verse 11 of uh, Revelation 19. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. It's Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Jesus is coming, right, to bring righteous judgment. And uh, uh, he's coming to bring righteous judgment to all that hasn't been judged. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. And he's coming to, like we talked about last week, you're either going to be judged according to your deeds, which are like filthy rags to him, or according to your faith in him, which is the only way to salvation and eternal life. And so in righteousness, he comes to judge and make war. It goes on. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. No, uh, Scholars, you know, debate. Was it his blood from the, the cross? Was it the blood of his enemies? Doesn't really matter. His name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven, oh, this is us right here, guys. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on, I imagine, smaller white horses. There we are, and notice, before I read this last verse, notice that we will not be clothed then with armor like helmets and breastplates, but with fine white linen representing our pure standing and righteousness before him. And we won't have a sword, but somebody will have a sword. The last verse says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. His name is called the Word of God. Of God. Why is Jesus called the word of God? 
Because Jesus is the very expression of God, right? Jesus is God translated. If you want to know what Jesus is like, I'm sorry, if you want to know what the Father's like, look at Jesus. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the living word and he will return with flames like fire in his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth. This is what John saw anyways. By which he will righteously judge injustice in the nations. Now, Jesus isn't actually going to return with a sword coming out of his mouth, right? This is imagery, just like in the Old Testament. God didn't actually clothe himself with righteousness or put on a helmet of salvation. This is imagery. This is metaphor. But why is he pictured as having a sword coming out of his mouth? Five times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is pictured with a sword coming out of his mouth. Not out of his chest, not out of his hand, out of his mouth. The imagery only points to one thing, the power and authority of his words. The words of Jesus have authority. In Matthew 8, when Jesus healed the leper, how did he do it? With a word. When Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, how did he do it? Lazarus, he spoke, come forth. In Mark 5, when Jesus cast out the demons from the man who was being tormented, how did he do it? He did it with the word when God created the heavens and the earth and everything that fills them. How did he do it? Genesis 1. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke and it was. His words have power and authority. And his word has power and authority. This book, this book, the scriptures, the word of God is the sword of the spirit and is the inspired authoritative word of God. Second Timothy says that scripture is breathed out of God's mouth. I prayed it in my prayer What Hebrews 4 says that uh, the word of God is living and active. That means that when we read it, we, it's not just we're reading it, it's reading us, right? It's alive. It's able to do work in our hearts and divide up things, the flesh and the spirit, and show us our intentions and all of that. It is alive. Matthew 4 says that God's word is bread. And it's better bread than Wood Ranch barbecue, which I love. <laughs> Psalm 119 says that God's word is light which means that when I don't know where to go, man, I'm like, I can't tell you the amount of times that God has spoken to me in his word and led me in paths of righteousness and lit my path up. It says that God's word encourages us and breathes life into discouraged souls. When we don't know if our thoughts are right or if they're misleading us somewhere, the word of God exposes misleading thoughts, it says in verse 29 of Psalm 119. When I'm distracted by all the things and I'm like, gosh, I don't even know where I'm going anymore. The word of God, it says in Psalm 119, reorients us back to the Lord. When I am feeling because of this life, like there is no hope here. There's right, there's, you're right, there's no eternal hope here. But the scriptures redirect my hearts and fill our hearts with true hope. When I am struggling, the word of God is a consolation in difficult times, it says in verse 50 of Psalm 119. The word of God even causes thankfulness and gratitude to well up in us. The word of God, when we don't know what to do, gives us wisdom. I can't tell you the amount of times when I've needed wisdom in a situation and I start reading the scriptures and I find God's wisdom. 
Psalm 119 and verse 100 tells us that the word of God gives us life and revives us. When we are fed up with this world and we need to remember, gosh, I need to set my eyes on eternity. The word of God, it says in Psalm 119, 123, causes us to long for eternity. For the anxious soul, the scriptures tell us that it is the word of God that gives us peace. Jeremiah 15 says that it's actually God's word that brings joy and delight to the heart. When I don't know what is true, John 17, Jesus said that God's word is truth. And in our passage today, we see that God's word is a weapon against the spiritual forces of wickedness. There is power and authority and victory in God's word. And just like Jesus, the living word is coming back to do some battle. God has given us his written word as a sword so we can do some battle. Just like Jesus has power and authority, God has given us, his children, power and authority. The kind of power and authority that comes from being offensively victorious in a battle. Speaking of which, did you notice that all these armor pieces that we've talked about have been defensive in nature, right? A belt, it, it's defensive, a breastplate, defensive, the helmet, the shoes, the shield, all defensive, but not this one. Swords are weapons. And in Bible times, they were only meant for one thing. The purpose of a sword is to bring death. They were used in battle to kill. And now God tells us that we are in battle and that we've been given a sword. For what purpose? To bring death. But not in the natural realm. Putting to death a physical enemy does us no good. By the way, you can put to death enemies with our words, with your words. That also does us no good. We do not kill people even with our words to advance the kingdom of God, but we do die to advance the kingdom of God. Whoa, bro. Really? This is where we're going? That, what do you, yeah. I mean, kinda. Here's what it says in Romans 8. Listen, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. Okay, so we obey our sinful nature. Ultimately, it's going to bring death. We know that. But if through the power of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. If by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. The word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The sword is for putting things to death. And by the Spirit, we put to death our sinful nature. Let me bring it all together here. The way that we kill the sin that tries to destroy us is with the Spirit's sword, which is the Word of God. Guys, we need to remember that we have an enemy who roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and that he will only use the most effective weapons. Sin and deception are the two most effective weapons of the enemy. So if he can tempt us into sin 
or capitalize on our already proclivity to sin, he will because he knows the destruction it will bring. I read this quote a few weeks ago, but it's worth repeating. Charles Spurgeon said, the devil is a greater scholar than you and a nimbler disputant. He can transform himself into an angel of light to deceive. He will get within you and trip up your heels before you are aware. He will play the juggler with you undiscerned and cheat you of your faith or innocency. And you shall not know that you have lost it. Nay, he will make you believe it is multiplied and increased when it is lost. You shall see neither hook nor line, much less the subtle angler himself while he is offering you his bait. And his baits shall be so fitted to your temper and disposition that he will be sure to find advantages within you and make your own principles and inclinations to betray you. And whenever he ruins you, he will make you the instrument of your own ruin. Two most common tactics of the enemy, sin and deception. He wants to use our own proclivity to sin even to destroy us. But God has given us the sword of his spirit to kill the destructive work of sin in our lives. As theologian John Owen once wrote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That is what swords are for and that's what the sword of the spirit is for. And it works like this against deception as well as you can imagine. Uh, The word is truth. Of course, it combats lies. Listen, Satan knows all too well what uh, Sun Tzu wrote in The Art of War is true, that all war is based on deception. Because Satan is a liar and the father of lies, everything he does involves some kind of lying. This is how he tempted Eve in the garden when he said, yeah, but did God really say he was deceiving? And this is how he tempted Jesus in the wilderness when he twisted the word of God. It was deceptive. But how did Jesus respond to the deceptive work of Satan? Three times he said, it is written. What was he talking about? He was talking about what was written? The word of God. It is written. Jesus used the word as a sword to put to death the power of deception because truth combats lies and God's truth has authority over lies. I just want to encourage you briefly here that if you've been struggling trying to figure out how to fight this battle, friends, you need to use the sword. Like, don't go into battle without a sword. Neil, I love you, but this sword's a little small, bro. It's like 18 inches. We're talking like the swords were like two feet probably. Use the sword. God would not send you into battle without a weapon, and he hasn't. If you're like, what do I, it's such a struggle. What am I supposed to do? And you're not spending time ingesting the word of God and letting it fill you and, and, and empower you and then come out of you. Man, friend, what are you doing? You're like going to play tennis without a tennis racket. You're going into battle without a sword. God's word is authority. And so when the lies are creeping in, don't forget that he's given you a sword to protect you and arm you in battle. So through sin and deception, Satan attempts to destroy the work of God in our lives. But God gives us the power and authority of his sword to destroy the work of Satan in our lives. When we receive God's word, walk in its truth, and stand in the power and authority of what it says, it becomes like a sword destroying sin and deception while simultaneously releasing life and freedom. 
And I just want to reiterate here that if you find yourself walking into a battle that it feels confusing, it feels deceptive, it feels tempting, listen, your words that are grounded in Scripture actually carry authority because God has given you his authority as a child of God. Like I can't, as I recall this week at our preaching meeting, the amount of times that I've been encountered with somebody who's full-on demonized. They are full-on possessed by a demon, frothing at the mouth, crazy low distorted voices saying things about me that they would never know, the whole deal. And I speak with authority to tell the demon to come out and they listen to me. Not because I'm Dominic Bally, because I have Jesus Christ in me and they recognize the authority that I have as a child of God. As a child of God, that's the kind of authority that God gives us. The authority of Jesus as an ambassador. An ambassador is given the authority of the one who sends them. Jesus has sent you with his authority. This is the kind of authority that he sends us into battle. When somebody says, son, go into battle. Here's my sword. That's what it's like. That's what it's like. God says, daughter, son, go into battle. It's going to be crazy, but you got my sword. You don't have your sword. You got my sword. And it's like, oh, dang, I got your sword? The one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand? That's a big sword. That's a big sword. That is what God has sent you with, that kind of power and authority in him. Amen? Amen. All right. So moving on. Uh, real quick, last thing I want to say is the sword is the last thing. He, it's not the last thing. It's the last thing I want to say about the sword. Uh, the sword was the last thing the soldier picked up, right? I just want to acknowledge here that the belt was the first thing he put on. Belt of truth, first thing. Sword of truth, last thing. It is both defensive and offensive. The word of God is both defensive and offensive. And it is both the beginning and the end of warfare and everything in between. The truth of God's word. Not your truth. I'm not talking about subjective truth. I'm talking about God's truth is essential for every part of the battle. Okay, so we're in a battle We've been given offensive, powerful, authoritative weapon in his word. But there's another key here to how the sword and the rest of the armor really take effect in our lives. I'm going to read verse 17 and 18 again. And take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Praying always. It is not a mistake that the Holy Spirit led Paul to include in this passage about God's armor an exhortation to pray. And not just to pray, but to live a life of prayer. He's talking about a posture of prayer. It says praying always. It's in the present participle tense, which means like that ongoing, continuous praying without ceasing kind of a thing. Now, that doesn't mean that you lock yourself in a bedroom, get on your knees, close your eyes for the rest of your life and never come out. To pray always means that there is an ongoing awareness of God's presence in our lives, an ongoing dialogue with him in our minds and a continual inclusion of him in our process, decision-making and thought life. And I believe prayer is included here in this passage because prayer is actually the posture of spiritual warfare. It is through prayer, I believe, that the spiritual armor actually takes effect and really goes to work. After all, it is in prayer that we meditate on the truth that holds us together like a belt. 
It is through prayer that we rehearse the truth of our righteous standing before God until it guards our spiritual vitality like a breastplate. It is through prayer that we learn to rest in the peace of Jesus that protects and stabilizes us like boots. It is in prayer that we confess our faith and confidence in God until it becomes like a shield protecting us from the fiery arrows of the wicked one. It is in prayer that the hope of our eternal salvation is restored and protects us like a helmet from the discouragement and disillusionment of the enemy. And it is really through prayer that the word of God, the sword, truly begins to take effect in our lives. I wonder if a prayerless Christian can actually be wearing all the armor, but never really accomplish anything in battle because they fail to pray and to live in this posture of prayer. In fact, I don't know if if the, the armor can really be appropriated apart from a posture of prayer. And I'm not talking about the like, God, put on the armor. That's all right. I already said, like, that's not what we're talking about. But this kind of like actual deep interacting with God, this actual conversing, this actual interceding, and this thoughtfulness where he's, he's on my mind and I'm including him. I'm like, wow, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you think about that posture of prayer? I believe that prayer is a posture of warfare because warfare is about God doing it, right? Like, I mean, we can talk all we want. We can like charge the gates of whatever government building if you're trying to do something like that or of injustice or whatever it is that you're trying to fight for. But really, until people's hearts are changed, there's no lasting change. Right? Even if you get to change something like a policy or like a, oh no, there's not as many like, uh, you know, starving kids or whatever happens. It's like, gosh, but if the hearts aren't changed, if the souls aren't changed, then we've only temporarily done anything. We have not eternally really done anything, but that eternal thing is a heart thing. And God is the one who addresses the heart. If that's the case, then we must use spiritual weapons This is a spiritual weapon. It reminds us also that God is the the source then of this, which prayer causes us to remember, okay, Lord, this is about you. Like you're the one where the power and authority really comes from. But it's not just that prayer is a posture of warfare, but prayer in and of itself is also a spiritual weapon. We need to know that there's power also in prayer. Paul says in the following verse, and pray for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. First of all, just take note that Paul didn't ask them to pray for all the things he could have, like the relief of his suffering or earthly comforts. He asked them to pray for what really mattered, which was boldness to keep preaching the gospel. But what I want to point out is that there was a reason that Paul asked the church to pray for him. There was a reason. Paul was in a spiritual battle, but he knew that spiritual warfare could be waged on his behalf by people other than him through prayer. Paul knew that prayer has the power to change things. Sometimes we can almost feel like it's pointless to pray. It's like, yeah, dude, what's the point? I don't feel like I'm really accomplishing anything like when I do something in the physical. But scripture says in James 5 that the effective prayer of a righteous person accomplishes 
much. As the old saying says, when men work, men work. But when men pray, God works. I don't know about you, but I want God working in the things that I'm passionate about. In Acts 12, Peter's arrested by Herod for preaching the gospel. He's put in prison. It says this in verse 4 of Acts 12. So when Herod had seized him, he put him in prison. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. Okay, but prayer. So Peter's arrested. His friends are concerned. They want to do something. But instead of storming the gates of Rome, they storm the gates of heaven. And what happens? God sends an angel to miraculously free Peter from prison at the very moment they were praying. He walks out of the prison and goes straight to the house where they are still praying. Why did Luke, who wrote Acts, make sure to tell us at the beginning of that story and the end of the story that they were praying? I believe he wanted us to see the connection. Things change in the spiritual realm when God's people pray. And then it affects the physical realm. These people wanted to help Peter. Through prayer, they could. And it appears that sometimes maybe God is waiting to do something until we actually ask him in prayer. He wants to involve us. I don't know how this works with his sovereignty, but it is in scripture. Ezekiel 22, for instance, I looked for a man who would stand in the gap, God said, and intercede for these people, but there was no one. Therefore, I have poured out my judgment on them. In other words, God was waiting for someone to stand in the gap to plead with him on their behalf until he acted. James 4 says that we don't have because we have not yet asked God in prayer. Now, obviously, there are some things that God's not going to change no matter how much you ask. You pray for Jesus not to come back. God's going to do it, right? Like that's already happening. But it appears that sometimes God waits to act until we ask. God has given us a weapon in prayer. We are in a spiritual battle, but God has not left us unarmed. Second Chronicles 20 says that we have a, a weapon in worship. Our passage here says we have a weapon in the sword of the spirit, the word of God. But possibly the most effective weapon of all is the, the tool of prayer. After all, when the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, uh, in, in Matthew 17, Jesus said, oh, it's because this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. There are some kinds of freedom that can only come through prayer. Friends, we are in a spiritual battle. God has given us tools and we're only uh, putting ourselves at a disadvantage when we don't use them. Can I just exhort you, if you don't have a regular rhythm of spending time with God in his word and in prayer, church, you're missing out. God's not like, oh, how am I gonna do the universe if Dominic doesn't pray and read his Bible? God's not tripping and he's not mad at you. You're missing out. You're trying to go into battle without the sword. You're trying to go into battle without recognizing whose authority you have. You're missing out. I, I can't encourage you enough. God is saying, I want to give you my power. I am giving you it. Use it. And listen, you're like, I don't know where to start, dude. I don't know the Bible. I don't understand it here. Let me just help you. Start in the book of John if this is new for you. Just start in the book of John. And here's what I do. I just open up and I'm like, John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And then I include prayer and I'm like, God, 
Speak to me. In the beginning was the word. Who's this talking about? Let me keep reading. As I keep reading, I get to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten. Oh, full of grace. Oh, it's talking about Jesus. Oh my gosh. Lord, speak to me through Jesus. He's called the word. What does that mean? That he's, and I'm talking to the Lord as I'm reading scripture. And then I get to something that applies to my kids. And I'm like, gosh, Lord, do that with my kids. And it's this interactive thing. Listen, you know how Geico in 15 minutes or less can save you 15% or more? on your car insurance, I'm telling you right now, 15 minutes or more with Jesus every day can literally change your life. Literally change your life. All right, I'm done. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Uh, here's how I want to end today. Let's just read these last three verses. I'm not going to teach them. I just want to read them. Here's how Paul concludes this. Tychius, the dear brother, is a, a partner of Paul's, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord will tell you everything. Right, this is how he's finishing his letter now. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. So Tychius probably brought this letter to the church in Ephesus. And he's saying, I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. And then here's how he ends is his final, uh, final words to the church. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who have love, who, I'm sorry, who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. As we finish our study in the book of Ephesians and finish this Kingdom Family series, I want to briefly bless you in the same way. I want to ask that you would stand with me. Let's just close our eyes together and if you don't mind, would you just put out your hands in front of you as if you were receiving something with your palms facing up? And if you don't know Jesus today, I want to invite you to do the same. You don't have peace with God right now. You might not even feel peace in your heart. It's because you're not at peace with God because you are still dead in your sin. Jesus came to forgive you of your sin and you put your trust in Jesus, you become at peace with God. If that's you today and you want to receive Jesus, I'd invite you to put your hands out as well to just receive him. Now also could be the moment for the person who is saying, yeah, man, I, I, I know Jesus, but I've been far from him. I want to return to him today. You put out your hands as well as I just pray this blessing over you. So with your heart in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. May you now in this moment be filled with all the fullness and goodness of God. May you in this moment, brothers and sisters, experience the breadth of who he is. May you be found in safety in his arms. And may your soul be at rest in what he says about him and what he says about you. Brothers and sisters, may you know that you are the beloved sons and daughters of God. And may that knowing and that assurance be all you need. 
May you know today that he is for you, that he is not against you. Today and every day, may you be armed with all of who he is, confident and held together in his truth, protected in his righteousness, shielded by his faithfulness, steady in his peace. May you be filled to overflowing with his hope and filled to all the fullness with his truth. Church, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. As we transition into this second set now, this is the time for us to respond to what's happening already in our hearts and our lives. Let's do that in singing. The prayer team will be on the right and the left. The, the signs are over there. They are people who are equipped and have a heart to serve you through prayer. If you've got something going on in your life, you're struggling with something, you're struggling in your mind, go get prayer for them. If you're feeling oppressed by the enemy, you've got lies happening, go get prayer for them. If you've got sin going in your life, the Bible says confess your sins to your brother and sister. Go and confess your sin or ask the person who you came with, say, will you pray for me? Would you just pray for me right now? And listen, if you put out your hands because you were like, I need to re return to Jesus today or I want to receive salvation today, I'm going to ask that you would just raise your hand so our ministry team can see you and just come over to you and pray personally with you. Is there anybody like that here? Just raise your hand up high so our ministry team can see you. Anybody that put out their hands for that reason? Okay. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you've encouraged us today. Now we want to respond to you, God. Now we just want to say, whoo, we want to sing about it. Listen, okay, church, come on. We're about to sing, there is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. All right, listen, don't, don't do one of these moves. There is power. There ain't no power in that. There is power in the name of Jesus. Listen, let's sing it like there's actually power. Because listen, what we see in scripture is that when the people of God worshiped in 2 Chronicles 20, the work of the enemy was destroyed. The work of the enemy was destroyed. So let's sing this like it's truth as we worship today. Amen.